we would just love to live in a world one day where no one has to do that and you know everyone can just travel freely no matter their like race gender sexuality anything like that but unfortunately now that is something that we do have to consciously think of all the time but at the same time it's like it's not the only thing we're thinking about Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. On this episode of Let's Go Together, we're doing something special. With Pride 2021 coming up in about a month, we're going to take a look back at some of our favorite conversations on this podcast with guests from the LGBTQ community. That's right, it's a clip show. Our first clip comes from my conversation with Gabby and Shanna, a New York-based couple who created the popular LGBTQ travel blog, 27 Travels. I asked them about the most LGBTQ-friendly international city they've traveled to. Oh, that is such a hard one because I think that Shanna and I would both have different answers, actually. (laughs) Yeah, because we just like, we've been to so many places that each of us have like a favorite. But I mean, I really loved when we were in Italy. We had a really great experience in Italy. We felt like we could just be ourselves and nobody bothered us. And if we held hands, you know, no one even like looked at us weird. And it was just really nice. We kind of like bounced around a few different parts of Italy, but we kind of felt that in every single part of Italy we went to and just wound up having the most amazing trip because of that. I will say that in Europe, holding hands is probably really, really common, even amongst like men in different parts of the world, more so than it is here in the States. So I think that they seem to be, and depends on the country you're in, more open to that type of endearment towards one another. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that's so nice for us when we're traveling like in Europe, because it's something that we always have to think so much about. Something as simple as like holding each other's hand, which is so nice to just be able to do and not have to worry about it, which when we're in Italy, for example, we're just able to do that. So I think my favorite would have to be Cape Town in South Africa. Just traveling all throughout South Africa, which we did last year, you can just really feel that it's extremely welcoming. There are pride flags everywhere. There are lots of couples like holding hands. There's a few gay bars, um, things like that. So we just had an amazing time there. We felt extremely comfortable being ourselves. We didn't feel like we had to hide anything. And a lot of times this happens when you're um, a same-sex couple, like when you're booking a hotel room, they like want to make sure that you want one bed. And <laughs> um, in South Africa, that didn't happen. Like when we had our hotel rooms, like no one was like, oh, you know, do you want two beds? Are you sure about this? Blah, blah, blah. We were like, no one asked that, which is like also really nice. It's like very like subtle things. That is awesome. Yeah, I never would think about being pressured to answer a question about how many beds that I want. Whatever I booked is what I booked. And then that's the room that you should fulfill. So these are things that I as a straight woman wouldn't even have to think about. And to hear that perspective is very interesting. You're like, no, I said what I said. We want one bed. Um, (laughs) It's that simple. And it seems like sometimes people are trying to force their narrative on you by saying like, are you sure you don't need two beds? It's like, no, Joker. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Did you hear me? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's funny because that's like actually something that's like a constant when we travel is that people love to ask us about our bed situation and like just make sure a hundred times, even though we're saying, yeah, that's what we booked, that it is. My goodness. Can you think of any other uh, nuances like that that come up that like a straight person wouldn't necessarily have to think about? 
Yeah, the, I mean, it happens a lot of time also when we're taking like a taxi or an Uber or something like the driver's just trying to be friendly and being like, oh, you know, how do you two know each other? And then we have to immediately be like, we have to like look at each other and be like, okay, like, what do we say here? So like, we usually don't automatically say that we're a couple. We'll just be like, oh, yeah, like we're friends. And then if we start talking and like the conversation is going in a direction where we feel like we can like reveal that we're a couple, we will. So every time we get into a taxi now, we have to like have this like mental thing of, are we going to be a couple or are we not? (laughs) Safety was actually something that Gabby and Shanna had a lot to talk about. So during your travels, and I love to know each of your perspectives, do you feel a heightened sense of awareness or having to be extra cautious as a lesbian couple traveling? And Shanna, I'd love to start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think safety for us is always our number one priority. Like before we decide to go anywhere, like the first thing we do, whether it's in the United States or out of the country, is look up the laws of that country regarding homosexuality and same-sex marriage and also the public opinion of the people who live in that country as well, just so that we kind of have an idea before going there, okay, you know, Maybe right off the bat, we shouldn't hold hands because we're not sure how they're going to accept us. Or if we're going somewhere that is extremely accepting, like this past weekend, we were just in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is like one of the most LGBTQ friendly places probably in the world. So there we were just like, oh, you know, no problem. We can hold hands. We could be ourselves. We don't have to worry about it. But for most of the time, we definitely do our research first just to make sure that we're going to be safe. And then from there, once we get to the place, we kind of do another assessment of like, okay, you know, the vibe here seems like really cool and like really welcoming, you know, maybe it would be fine if we, you know, held hands or kissed or something like that. But if we go somewhere and we kind of don't really feel very welcomed, or we just feel like we can't really be ourselves there, then we just won't show that we're a couple. So we won't hold hands or we won't do any PDA since we're both feminine passing, that is a privilege of ours to be able to do that because there are other LGBTQ relationships where they won't be able to show that they're not a couple no matter what they do. So that is a privilege of ours to be able not to do that. But yeah, we definitely always are worried about safety, number one. Absolutely. Gabby, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that traveling as a lesbian couple, we just always have a heightened awareness about like our surroundings and the people around us. I mean, even just as women, that's something that we're really conscious of because if we're traveling somewhere, whether it's in our country or like abroad, and we don't know how people treat women there specifically, that can also be something that's an issue and that we have to be really careful about. What have you seen in the differences between traveling domestically as a couple and internationally as a couple? It truly depends on the city or the state or the country. Like every place is different. For example, like in New York City, where we're from, or in other urban cities, we have felt like really comfortable being ourselves. If we see like a pride flag in the city or outside of a store or like a little pride sticker in in a window of a shop or something, no matter where it is, we automatically feel like, okay, we can be ourselves here. But it could be the same thing, for example, if we're traveling, we just did a road trip throughout the Midwest and drove all the way from New York City to Wyoming. And some of the states in the middle there in the Midwest, we didn't really feel 100% comfortable being ourselves. So we just 
didn't hold hands or show any PDA. We just kind of were trying to like enjoy ourselves as best we could. But yeah, it really just depends on the place. I mean, there is no like set of rules you can follow. Be like, oh, here is fine. And here is this. Like everyone's going to have a different experience everywhere. You kind of have to assess the situation for yourself while you're there. That's the best advice I could give. Safety was also a central theme in our next clip from my conversation with Brad and Matt Curiak a married couple on a mission to visit all 419 U.S. national parks in their RV home. So while you guys have been traveling around to these national parks in your RV, have you faced discrimination and felt unsafe during your travels as a gay couple? Because you mentioned, you know, possibly getting kicked out or trying to test the tone of the area, the waters, by, you know, giving different descriptors of the relationship depending on where you are? It's very subtle in a lot of cases, but then there are direct cases, yes. How do you guys deal with that? I'll let Matt go on this one. I know for me, when we're in a place that I'm not yet sure about or comfortable with, I try not to, even though it kind of sounds rude, like I don't engage that much. I stay quiet and like distant. It was a big adjustment going from a big city and it still takes getting used to because in Chicago, I never like hesitated or thought twice about how I was perceived, whether that like how I dressed or being out and about with Brad, holding hands, kissing in public, all of that. That was all normal and comfortable. And then suddenly when I'm in these much smaller towns and cities, I wasn't comfortable and I wasn't used to that feeling, feeling like I had to tone myself down because I used to dress pretty like colorfully and have like an absurd amount of like weird jewelry and like all these rings and stuff. And I just kind of put all that away for the most part. Some of that had to do with just like the physical restrictions of being in a 26 foot space all of a sudden. But also I just shifted more towards very straightforward looks and like outfits trying to I don't know I guess in a way like blend in as much as possible but then even still like being worried that people were judging me or looking at me different and it's been hard to acclimate to that type of mentality it's not a pleasant feeling and I also don't want to assume that everybody I come in contact with hates me or anything like that so I try to also keep that in mind, not judging the book by the cover and just being like, oh, you all, you know, don't want me here. Because on the other hand, I've been very pleasantly surprised by some of the nicest interactions and people in communities ever who are just so warm and gracious. So it's kind of, it's been tricky to navigate that emotionally and keep everything kind of in check while also taking care of like, myself and my relationship with Brad because it reflects on him too and it's taken me a year like a year and a half or a little bit more now to be able to articulate that a little more clearly and then be more comfortable with it so it's still a work in progress and one thing just to elaborate on this a little bit is I have a a different privilege than Matt does because I am straight looking. We both have a privilege because we are Caucasian, but I have tattoos. I'm bulky. I don't 
look the role of being a typical quote-unquote gay. And I think that that is a privilege that I have and that is the difference between we're living the same lifestyle in the same areas and people would never assume that I'm gay. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I've looked at both of your social media and your website and it was an observation that I made as well. I could see where your comfort level is different than Matt's per se. And so I'm, I'm glad that you touched on that because I could see, you know, why Matt's experience would feel a little bit more uncomfortable or or fearful even because it's something that can be more easily detected just based off of a look. Brad, how has this been for you? Yeah, so what we do is we read each other. I'm not I'm never gonna force him to hold my hand. One, because that's just not good relationship ethics, but um, but two, because I want him to be comfortable. And if in that aspect we need to be friends versus husbands, then that's what we do. It's not like when I get to an RV park and they see two guys and they're like, like, oh, are you guys brothers? We're like, no, um, you know, that's my other half. You know, if they ask directly, we'll be honest. But we don't say my husband. We, we kind of say other half, my partner. We use different terminology and words to really portray the best neutral way to test tones of other people. So we don't have to have a fear of getting kicked out of an RV park, which I don't think happens a lot. But it's still a, a fear in the back of our mind. So we just kind of be respectful of that. After the break, we'll hear more from Brad and Matt about their travel tips for LGBTQ travelers, as well as revisit our conversation with Arya Saeed and Cam Burns, two travelers who identify as transgender. Welcome back to Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. In our next clip with Matt and Brad Curiac, I asked them to share any travel advice they had for fellow LGBTQ travelers. Do your research. Make sure that you find the lifestyle that you want. And if you have any questions, please reach out to us because we love talking with people and educating people and we want to be a great resource. I am constantly checking my Instagram messages, um, Bradley underscore KRC. And Matt's is Matt underscore KRC. And we'll gladly answer any questions you have because we want you to go and experience America for what it really is and all the amazing things that the national parks, state parks, cities, towns have to offer because there's so much beauty out here. And we are going to keep on doing this because we love it. And we do feel safe enough to be on the road, but we still have to have these safety checks. Yeah. And I want to add to I I think it's important to not let fear or preconceived notions stifle your sense of adventure or wanderlust. There's a fine line between being cautious and also just making rash assumptions about whole communities. And that's something I'm still trying to navigate personally. So it's easier said than done. But just don't let fear or anxiety dissuade you from carving your own path and exploring whatever it is you want to explore, whether it's a national park or a different city or a small town, whatever it is, there's a way that you can be mindful and cautious and put the research in while also 
going out and exploring and having fun and meeting new people, going to new restaurants, going to new cities and communities. It's all achievable. You can do all of that while taking care of yourself. So just a matter of doing it at your own pace, I think, and making sure that you're comfortable with it before taking these next steps because everybody operates at different intervals. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest or tell people to do it exactly how we did it. Just do it at your own pace and make sure that you feel safe and comfortable because there's so much out there to see and everyone deserves to see and explore these places. Right. Matt, you said in an essay you wrote for Travel and Leisure that national parks especially have felt like the ultimate safe spaces. Tell me more about that. That's definitely true. One of my favorite things about the national parks is they do feel like very neutral places that kind of transcend all walks of life and backgrounds and like political alignments and all that. Whether I'm at a giant national park like Yellowstone or a smaller one or a national battlefield like Little Bighorn, these are places where like you're crossing paths with people there families, single people, couples, everyone is just like sharing this interest and this passion in these places. And it's refreshing. It's one of the very few instances where everyone's kind of on the same page and enjoying something together. And so that's what I love about them. They're these beautiful communal communal places. And then also just like park rangers and everyone who works for the National Park Service are very inspiring talented and welcoming people who just exude passion. And that's a nice thing to be around because it's palpable. There's something very energizing about that. So whether I'm feeling down or threatened or anything, it's a nice place to go and recharge and just be around people with shared interests. And it's just really great. (laughs) It's been really beneficial for me emotionally. Our last clip comes from my conversation with Arya Saeed and Cam Burns about traveling with a trans identity. The world is slowly becoming more aware of the different ways individuals identify with regards to gender outside of the traditional male-female binary. But as the world catches up, how do travelers who identify as transgender deal with travel? I asked Arya and Cam their thoughts. What is it like traveling through America as an American with a trans identity? And maybe you can discuss, you know, your first trip. So I will start by saying I have not been out for that long. I've only been out and physically and medically transitioning for about two years now. And for the first year, I just pretty much made sure I would not have to fly anywhere. I didn't make any big trips. If I did, they were by train or by car. So my first trip was about, I want to say, a year and a half into my transition. And I was flying out to San Francisco from New York. And it was relatively uneventful. I was lucky. But the return trip was less so. I did get flagged as I was going through TSA, which was... Not the worst thing. They just gave me the pat down, but it was a bit stressful because I was perceived as male. So they had a male TSA agent pat me down and it was a little bit stressful as they got closer to like my genital area. 
again, nothing really happened, but it was just something where I was pretty tense the whole time because anything could have happened in that moment. It's interesting that you share this experience because the more I do this podcast and I get to learn about so many diverse experiences, these are things that I would never think of while going through TSA for myself personally. I walk through, if I get pat down, they assign me a woman. But it's so enlightening to know that there are experiences like this and they can be extremely anxiety-ridden. And so thank you for sharing that because I think unless you are a trans person, you wouldn't necessarily think about that experience. And so... It's interesting to hear to hear that other perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Aria? Yeah, I transitioned in high school. So I think what makes, I think, my experience different is just the timeline of awareness for trans people and trans people having um, more agency now than definitely back then to educate the world on our experiences and, and share our stories. When I was 18, I came to San Francisco I moved to San Francisco around 17, 18, but I went to a smaller town in California on the coast um, with some friends. We took a road trip. And again, this was just a different time when people didn't immediately know what the word transgender meant. They had never seen a transgender person. This was before the era of visibility that we have now, where now people can see trans people on television and in different industries and, and so on. And so some friends of mine, um, they're cisgender, some of them LGBT, and we went to a restaurant and the server, we're like ordering and we're talking, we're hanging out. Again, we're in this like small coastal city in California, Northern California. And the server comes up to me and was like, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is a family establishment. There are children in here. It's literally what she, she was so adamant. I'm like, what? And she's like, you're a man in a, in a, in a dress and like freaking out. She told us that she refused to serve us. She pointed to the sign that says that they had right to refuse service to anyone. And so that was like my first brush with really sort of blatant transphobia in that particular way. I know we love to talk about how liberal the coastal cities are or the coastal areas, bigger cities. But I think people will find, if you talk to enough trans people, that transphobia exists everywhere. Mm -hmm. I've had similar experiences going to the South, but I think what's also different is like, as much stigma as there is about people in the South, I find that people in the South have actually been a lot more respectful and a lot nicer to me than sometimes um, in more liberal environments like New York or San Francisco. I have to admit, that is shocking to me to hear that, that you feel more welcome and accepted in the South than versus, like you said, liberal Mm. coastal places. Can I add something there? Sure. So I have also sort of noticed that experience. And I think for me, at least, part of it is that gender is more binary in the middle of the country and in the South. So in New York, I often get read as, not so much anymore, but 
uh, especially early on, I would get read as a masculine woman or a non-binary person because people are more used to seeing fluid gender expression, whereas in the South, people expect to see men or women. So they put you into the category you most fit with. And so whenever I'm in anywhere other than New York, I am misgendered much less frequently than I am here. And then I think also Southern culture, mm-hmm. there's still sort of a, um, a norm of, of being polite and minding your own business. <laughs> Minding the business that pays you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can you recall a time traveling abroad or domestically where you felt unwelcome? I don't know if I have an experience of going to a place and feeling unwelcome so much as having going to a place that I know is traditionally not accepting of either LGBT people or trans people specifically and and having to be very vigilant about my safety. Yes. Because Kelly, you and I were in Brazil. We did that tour, right? And like, yes. you know, we talked about it because we went to that club and I had yeah. an anxiety attack mm-hmm. when we were outside that club. There were folks gathering in the street and, you know, we're in Brazil and Brazil is beautiful and amazing and um, the culture and everything. And I was so excited to go. And at the same time, I was so nervous and like almost skittish because Brazil is has the highest mortality rates of transgender people in the world. United States is, is second, right? And so trans women are killed quite frequently and at high rates in Brazil specifically. So I had to bring folks with me to travel for safety. Like I was sending pins to the coordinators of that speaking to her just so that they knew where I was at all times. Like, and I think those are things that people don't think of naturally when you travel. As with the other guests we've highlighted, safety while traveling is at the top of mind for Aria and Cam. In this clip, I asked them how they prepare for travel. What things do you have to consider when preparing for a trip, Cam? First of all, I very recently changed my legal name and got an ID with my new legal name and my correct sex male. So that has helped a lot because before when I was traveling, I would have to get a boarding pass in my old name and that always got looks and confusion. And luckily it usually wasn't a huge deal because I was flying out of New York, but it was always something kind of in the front of my mind. And I've had top surgery, which is essentially breast removal surgery. But before that, I usually wore a binder, um, which compresses your chest. But while flying, I would wear a sports bra and an oversized shirt instead, because I knew there was a chance I would be padded down. And again, I just didn't want to explain that. Hmm. Aria, how do you prepare for a trip? Yeah, um... Besides showing up fly. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think I have my own experiences traveling too. And then I've seen how some of my friends have different experiences. So for instance, a friend of mine, she's six foot four. She's what we consider visibly trans, right? Like she's beautiful and stunning, but people know she's trans when she walks in the room and she's definitely fine with it. But I think She has difficulty when it comes to customs. So we've traveled together. She's a DJ. 
And so she's had issues that I have not had, which is even though her ID and stuff say female, you know, as trans people, we get to live in the fantasy of cisgender people's minds. And so, you know, being in customs in London was one of the most horrific experiences because they detained her for eight hours simply because they did not believe that she was really a woman. Wow. Right? Like those kind of experiences are ones that it's like, those are hard to prepare for. I encourage every trans person I know, anyone that's non-binary, anyone that's uh, gender non-conforming, right? Anyone that may have issues with, you know, security measures within airports. I encourage everyone to get global entry and TSA pre-check. It has been a huge lifesaver for me. Not only do you get to keep your shoes on and you don't have to like unpack your suitcase at the TSA belt for the scanning. You just put it on the on the runway belt thing and you walk through the little metal detector. But also like very rarely do I get pat down. I think before when I was just flying, you know, in the regular TSA line, like I've had people ask me to remove my, uh, is it a wig? Is it a weave? Can you remove it? We need to see what's underneath. I've had people, you know, not sure which gendered TSA agent they should send to over to me to pat me down. Like it's just, it's, it's too much. As trans people, we just, we just have to invest in the resources that exist to minimize those interactions as much as possible. That's just what I believe. Like we do unfortunately have to go the extra mile while we're educating the world to be inclusive of us. I tell trans people all the time, get TSA pre-check, like get global entry. It just saves you so much of the headache that comes with traveling to start. Another thing I do to prepare to travel is, you know, making sure my phone is charged, you know, using apps like Lyft and Uber um, because there's location tracking and GPS. Yeah, I treat my travel like as if I'm doing the travel itinerary for Beyonce, like making sure that <laughs> making sure that there's a safety plan, that things are set up ahead of time when I get there, especially internationally, like um, doing a car service. Like those are the, the extra mile things that I do to just maximize my safety. I usually, if I'm traveling to another country, I prefer to stay in a hotel versus like someone's house just because, well, A, I like the amenities, but B, it's a standardized thing. Like, you know, there's always going to be concierge. You know that the, it's going to be in a higher traffic area. Like you're not going into the remote area of the city and just staying at someone's castle and like not having an accountability person to check on you. Like, those are all things that I consider. So Ari is given a lot of advice and shared things that she does for herself. Cam, what advice would you give to a trans person or a gender non-conforming traveler? I would definitely echo global entry, TSA pre-check. Those are very valuable um, if you can afford it. Having a person who knows what you're doing and where you're going, whether they're physically traveling with you or it's a friend back home who you can say, hey, I'm going out tonight. If you don't hear from me by X time, like give me a call, see what's up. You can share your location with that person. 
But yeah, I think opting for Uber or Lyft over public transportation or a standard cab is usually safer. We'll leave you with this final clip from Shanna of 27 Travels, where she shares her hopes for a more tolerant future for all travelers. And I hope that one day we'll be able to make that future a reality. We still love traveling and we wouldn't, just because we have to go through that experience, we we wouldn't ever stop traveling. Like we would just love to live in a world one day where no one has to do that. And, you know, everyone can just travel freely, no matter their like race, gender, sexuality, anything like that. But unfortunately now that is something that we do have to consciously think of all the time. But at the same time, it's like, it's not the only thing we're thinking about. We are still, you know, hiking and going into shops and exploring and like doing all of this stuff. So it's like, it kind of has become part of our like travel routine almost. Whereas like, we know we're, that we're probably gonna be in a situation where we have to do that. We just do it when we have to and we just try and have the best time and enjoy ourselves. Because like for us, like there is no experience like traveling. Thanks for listening to Let's Go Together, a podcast by Traveling Leisure. I'm Kelly Edwards. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Saab, Danielle Roth, Marvin Yu, and Lene Beck-Sillison. Thanks also to the team at Traveling Leisure, Deanne Kurzerski, Nina Ruggiero, and Tanner Saunders. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag. And you can find me at Kelly Set Go.